Hello everyone and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I'm Gaz, and with me, as usual, is my good friend Ben. How's it going, Ben? Hello. All things are groovy in the in the shed. Excellent. Well, it does look lovely. As our special guest has already announced, he's been on before, but we're delighted to have him back. Mr. Sean Tonkin, how's it going? Hey, it's going well. Thanks for having me back. Excellent. Well, last time you were here, I think we were chatting mainly about Iron Swine, but we didn't get too much into the kind of sci-fi realms which we're about to launch into here now in Iron Swine Starforged, which has uh, been out for a little bit now. And I think it's fair to say that it's, from our perspective anyway, certainly in the UK, it's been going gangbusters. Like a lot of people have been talking about it uh, and really excited about it. So how's it, how's it gone for you on your side of the fence? Uh, it's going really well. We had the Kickstarter a couple years ago. We fulfilled on the digital end of things last year around May. And then from May through the end of the year last year, it was the travails of worldwide fulfillment. Got that sorted by the beginning of the year. So since then, it's just been uh, coasting. We're about sold out now on the uh, the extra that I printed from the Kickstarter, so now it's a matter of what's where the future lies for a second print run, which I imagine will get going here in the next couple months or so. Wonderful stuff. Well, no doubt after this hour, our listeners will be rushing to press the buy button. Uh, <laughs> uh, posting should they may or may not. <laughs> currently in stock in a couple places, but going out of stock pretty pretty quickly, I think, here in the next couple of weeks probably. Yeah, yeah, that that shuts up and give you uh, let me give you your money kind of mem from future armor. No doubt, start appearing anytime soon. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I think one of the good things about well, actually, before I start, before I get ahead of myself, let's talk about what the game is is and isn't about. Perhaps for people who don't know. So, how how would you pitched Star Forged as a sci-fi game compared to say something like I don't know Traveler or some other sort of game like that? What makes it? What's your unique? exciting thing about Star Force, would you say? Well, there's a few things. One is is its support for multiple game modes. So it's it's out of the box. It supports solo play, meaning a person playing without a GM. Uh, it supports co-op play, which means a couple people, you know, playing together without the aid of a GM. And then traditional, what I call guided play, which is traditional GM-led play. So it supports all those modes. It, it does that just through the the way the mechanics you interact with the mechanics which are fairly narrative driven and prompt driven through its use of uh, apocalypse world style moves and then it has a bevy of oracles for generating locations and events uh, sci-fi centric oracles like generating planets and settlements in space and weird space creatures and all those sort of things so you can sort of like just generate the world on the fly rather than having to uh go into you know game prep and and or depend upon a gm necessarily to flesh out that world for you so it's intended really to play as you go in terms of theme it's you know it's not too unusual in that it's fairly low tech if you will sci-fi like it's it's star wars on the outer rim it's uh you know it's the mandalorian it's it's um got a little bit of the industrial sort of alien vibe, things like that. So although it's got some hand wavy stuff around fast and light travel and stuff, it's not super advanced sci-fi, nor is it super hard sci-fi. It's meant to be pretty loose and fun. 
Uh, yeah, and I think it achieves those goals. I think one of the interesting things about uh, Star Wars particularly is that it's got the oracles, as you say, which are basically tables to roll on to give you inspiration and to create uh, ideas and places and people and things. Uh, but it, the the setup also gives you like uh, boxes it in a little bit. I think sometimes with sci-fi games, it can just be you can do anything you want, and it's hard for people to get a grasp of what what sort of thing are we trying to do. But having the oracles as some kind of setup about where you are and uh, like how you've got there to a degree and what what the setup is that that gives you some and a framework for what you're all trying to achieve. Is that is that a fair comment? Yeah, and there's a there's a campaign setup exercise that where you sort of define what are the truths for your setting, what I call truths for the setting, and that was that was the case with Iron Torn as well, where you sort of like build out your fantasy setting a little bit by defining what are the default assumptions for that setting, um, what are the sort of the known truths. Those truths may be contradicted through play, like you may introduce things just through oracle prompts or things like that that. You know, for example, there's no space magic in my setting, right? Because mm. I don't want to play with space magic. But then you encounter something that uh, introduces some magic or something that seems magical, right? Maybe that's just an advanced technology you don't really understand, yada, yada, the typical sci-fi tropes. But Or things like, you know, do you want to play with, uh, like, space zombies or, or horde-type things where those things can exist in your setting. So all that, you can sort of set those dials, and that sort of guides... Um, the nature of your setting there are some like there are some baselines that assumptions that you start with um and then you just sort of you know tweak based on that so i think that's a good exercise for people to come to the table just because as you say sci-fi is such an expansive genre even more so i think than fantasy Agreed, yeah. that it's good to put some sort of guardrails in there understand what you're working with and the game is built around you know assumptions of limitations around technology and stuff that I think call back to what I talked about, that more sort of retro vibe of some of the technology that's at play in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So um, there'll be a, a YouTube out at some point for Unconventional Gems, a new project that uh, we're starting up, showing some actual play. But uh, Ben, for that, you actually set up some guided play for for an episode of Star Force. So I, I don't suppose you plot a particular scenario like you would Traveller or some of the bespoke sort of trad TPG RPG. How did you find using Starforged to set up a one shot of Starforged? It was uh, it was a delight. You'd be glad to hear Sean. It was <laughs> it was really interesting. It was it was like I was having my hand held all the way through the process and in a good way because I'm I'm not particularly I'm normally the kind of guy that buys a published scenario. You know, when I'm playing traditional games I'd, I'd like to just get something, tear the wrapper off of it maybe hack it a little bit or just mine it for scenes, encounters, NPCs. Sure. Um, but this was this was definitely, I thought, I'll, I'll stretch myself here and I'll just try and stick to stick to what I've got here. So I generated the truths, which was great fun. Uh, I mean, really good. I don't know quite how many combinations there are for the truths, but there's, there's sort of three for each, isn't there? And someone yeah. who's good at maths could tell me how many <laughs> universes you could generate out of that. Um, but that, my one came out, you know, a little bit 40K, a little bit Star Wars, and that was fine with me. So I bent that, bent that a little bit to suit and then just got started. And uh, every turn, whenever I had to do like, you know, the thinky bit, like, uh, oh, okay, so we've got a starship. Okay, what's it called? Instead of just sort of scratching my head or coming up with a, just some something lame out of a sci-fi novel that I've read a million times before, just rolled on the Oracle tables. You've got tables for everything. 
um, and they're quite expansive, big tables as well. And um, you know, I treat myself sometimes and roll twice and pick my favourite <laughs> <laughs> as a little <laughs> as a little luxury every now and again. And it just started to unfold just beautifully. And it's not, and it, and it was more than just a case of like rolling up NPC names or stuff like that. I just set out a couple of scenes, but I was really, I was kind of careful to not not prep, well, not prep very much really, just prep some situations, the apocalypse world way. And previously to this, um, I tried um, some co-op play with Starforge, and that was that was much more tricky. That was much more tricky because we were playing as strangers, and and there was sort of like you know the dynamics of strangers was sure. kind of getting in the way of it, and yeah. there's always someone wants to quarterback everything, and it became kind of guided play, but. I wasn't being the guide, so. <laughs> but but in this sense, it, it worked really well. And, and to cut a, a couple of long stories short, I've gone back and run that scenario four times now that I came up with, and it's a fairly minimal plot, honestly. But every single time, it's been very very different, very dramatic. The the drama and the fiction takes you to the dice quite often, and every time the dice hit the table, it takes you off on a tangent. Um, it's not a tangent. It takes you in a direction that you can't possibly predict everything that's going to happen. You can't plan for it, but the Oracle tables are right there beside you every time. And it was just the investment in the game from the players and from me. It was honestly a real gaming highlight for me. It's been playing Star Wars this last few months. Every time I've done it, it's been it's been spectacularly successful. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Thank you. I think yeah. When I think one of the nice things about a GM-led game with Starforge, although I think Ironsworn and Starforge are probably best known as like GM-less or solo games, is for me in particular as a GM, I just like to be, number one, I don't like to do a ton of prep because I'm lazy. Um, I just find that a little bit of work. I think prep can be fun in some circumstances, but I don't know, the pressure of like, oh, I've got a game on Saturday, I have to come up with something like is is, um, is a lot. And then in-game... I just I have a really hard time with game mechanics, like internalizing mechanics as a GM. I feel a lot of pressure of like doing things right, but not looking up and and sort of ruining the flow of the game, managing all the NPC stats, like all that stuff's just a lot for me. So that's like one of the drivers for creating Ironsworn and Starforge was not only something that supports solo, but sort of like almost the impetus for that was how can I make my life easy if I'm running a game where I can just be a little bit hands-off in terms of the mechanical stuff, like just a little bit more be the world and react to what the players are doing and let them take some narrative authority and ask them questions about, you know, if I don't have an answer, turn it back to them and just have a lot of flexibility around that. Don't worry about statting up NPCs, yada, yada. So um, I think it really works well, you know, if, if, if that sort of thing is your jam. I think it does. And, what surprised me is that it's a very, very fiction-first game, um, which is great. I have no problem with that at all. And I, and I do a lot of comparisons in my head to stuff like Scum and Villainy because that's where I came from. Yep. And, and but they handle they handle things in a very different way. But for for what is ostensibly a pretty narrative game, it's, there's plenty of mechanics in there. The dice matter, yeah. and, and they have to come out at a certain time. And, and you have to you have to go with what they say because it's taking you places that you you, you just got to go with. Um, and between that. Momentum, which we could get into the details of how all this works, of course. But you know, you've not got a huge amount on your character sheet, but everything you have got on there matters, and it all comes into play. So, despite it looking, I think it looks very sort of the way that you've designed it, and you know, I know your layout guys and 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 the art that goes behind it is all part of the package for me. 
it looks very, very simple, but I think there's some system mastery in there. And every time I played it, I felt I've got a bit better at doing it and got a bit slicker. Um, but it still feels like there's an awful lot of depth to it. I mean, I certainly haven't run out of stuff to do with it yet, and it's been a while now I've been playing. Yeah, I definitely tried to build some game in the game. I think that's, mm. for me, again, that sort of goes back to some of the aspects I like. And I, I did a lot of um, board gaming prior to developing Ironsworn originally, and so a lot of like the, the little resource management bits that come along for that and just the way the dice operate and the way the moves connect to each other, all that I think is somewhat driven by mm. the the goal to like create a little bit of like, you know, as you say, system mastery or have some game in there that, that is fun to engage with. A lot of solo games, uh, a little bit more focused on things like journaling and, and, and emphasize narrative, which mm-hmm. is also great, right? It's just another option where Ironsworn, I think, is a little bit more on almost the trad side of things and just in terms of, you know, I wouldn't even call it mid crunch. It's pretty low crunch, but there is some there is some bits and bobs in there, and some interlocking spokes and gears in terms of what's making it all work. Yeah, and I think it it spreads it out a little bit as well, doesn't it? Because it's not like it puts some of the weight back on the players rather than yeah. just having a GM. Because yeah. I, I did have a convention experience uh, like Ben as well, a different one, but I think some of the same people are involved, and it had to. For me, the slight issue was that it was guided, but the guide was trying to do too much almost, and he was yeah. trying to tell me what move I should use in certain situations. That it's like, no, I'm in a I'm in a bad spot, so I get to pick one of these moves, and based on what I say I'm doing, will inform sure. which one of these I'm. You know, it's that yeah. kind of thing. Like, yeah. just yeah. you don't have to be quite as hands on as much as a GM almost, because the the system is there for a bit like a board game in a way that for everyone to yeah. play with, but. It definitely is informed by the narrative. So when you're entering into a fight, for example, which is quite abstracted in the game, there's kind of five different ways, and each one's tied to a different stat. And depending on how you said what you're doing, you'll roll a particular stat. So it behooves a player to understand what they're good at and then tell the story in a certain way so they get to use the big numbers on the character sheet if, if they're interested in that sort of thing. Yeah, GMs who come from, like, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse uh, have played a lot of those games. There's some... Precepts in that game, like, you know, never speak your moves if you're a player, right? That I sort of go against with Iron Sword and Star Force because, number one, it's solo. So it's it's something you do need to be sort of internalizing and speaking your moves, you know, in some extent. And then within a guided game, you know, I think it's okay for the players to sort of lead with a move they're making versus the narrative and then framing up the move. You always want to sort of like wrap it in the narrative of what's the context of the situation and what does it look like, but it's it's fine to front on that with a move. And there's some explicit choices in the way the game works of of mechanical rewards for moves and a risk reward factor for certain things. Right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, in combat, there's certain things that are more risky but have a higher reward. Um, for example, so um it's fine to be sort of be thinking in that like from that more mechanical perspective and then loop back to frame it up within the narrative i think that's all good there's a bunch of moves in star force right I yeah i get criticized for the number, <laughs> of my, the number of moves in my games you know there's the there's the you know i think there's people who believe if you have any in a in a in a pbda game if you've got more than you know eight moves it's a design failure and i multiply that by four or five (laughs) but 
I like to think that the way I have things organized and categorized and the way that, that groups of moves are like individual little game loops, right? That mm -hmm. yeah. you don't necessarily need to refer to that move unless you're within, unless you're doing that specific thing. So it's not like you're picking at any moment from 50 moves, any moment you're picking from a handful really mm. at most, just depending upon the situation. Right. And it takes a little while before you, you don't have to learn the moves. You just have to learn the way they're organized. Right. And then from there you're good. And one of the reasons that moves appeal to me, moves really, there's no magic in moves. They're really just game mechanics, but reframed a little bit right you could you could turn D D into moves really you could just take all the game mechanics and phrase them as a move with input outputs and it would be the same thing but um they allow for a little bit more nuance between in in, in between the different actions and some sort of like playing with the outcomes of different player choices and for me again i have a terrible time internalizing mechanics like it it reduces stress for me just to go to refer to a move. And I wrote the damn games, but I still look at the moves as I play because the moves sort of, especially if you're soul playing, they create a conversation a little bit. It's, you know, it's the conversation that you're maybe missing out on with other players. The moves are now the other half of that conversation for you. And it's like, oh, I'm doing this thing. This is what it looks like. These are the choices I have. Then these are what happens based on the role I'm making. And that's that's there's a nice little like you know drumbeat of of um, narrative I think that happens there when you're when you're playing solo especially. Mm. We talked to Vincent Baker on a previous show and he said moves are just subsystems really. Yeah. <laughs> Give him a fancy name and people believe anything. Yeah. I mean, I could I could easily I don't want to say easily I could take Iron Sworn or Starforge and I could make them a more sort of traditional facing mechanical game just by writing out what all the mechanics are but then you're sort of like leafing through the book and trying to remember oh what happens if such and such or how do i do a or b versus just i'm doing this here's the move let's resolve it and get on with our day if i was a better designer there'd probably be fewer moves probably if i uh if i did uh do it as a non-move game I would probably simplify things a fair bit, but I think that would, I think that would take away from the, some of the experience a little bit, you know, hmm. um, iron sworn could easily just be the core mechanic of the two challenge dice and the action die and roll that. And if you get a, uh, weak hit, you get success at a cost. If you get a strong hit, you get, um, uh, you know, complete success. And that could be the system, right? And then you just sort of interpret that based on the situation. And it'd be fine, but I think it would just be missing some of the nuance of some of the resource management that goes along with that and some of the varied um, levels of success, even within weak hit and strong hit, depending on what you're doing and that risk-reward balance that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why why moves and that's why so many moves. Is it the best choice? I don't know. Maybe not, but... I think I think it works, and I think people who initially look at it and say, "Oh, that's a lot of moves. I can't. There's no way I can deal with that." Once they get into the rhythm of it, I think it, I, th I think it, I think it works in play, and that's that's you know that's why I sort of continue in that direction. Yeah, I think it's like you say, it's just understanding 
It's a bit like the One Ring, for example, has got a different subsystem for journeys and for combat and for... Yeah. Uh, I can't what they call them now, but social interaction councils, I think they called it in the new game. Yep, councils, yep. But yep. It's, it's that sort of thing. So you play Star Forge, like you say, when it gets to a fight, if, if such a thing occurs, then you, you are down to eight moves that you would get in the Pockets World game or something. There's you know yeah. a simple number. And it... I mean, you get triggers like that, like I think Ben's mentioned this before about D&D, that once you, someone says roll for initiative, it suddenly turns into a different game and everybody knows what they're doing and yeah. turns to a different set of mechanics and that kind of thing. And that's that's just basically what Star Wars is doing. You say you're going to enter the fray. Okay, well, everybody knows to turn over to the page with the combat things on and these are the moves we're using for this section until that's resolved and then we'll flip back to something else when we do an exploration or we do whatever it is we might be doing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and I have to say as well, you know, that, uh, last time we talked, uh, Starforge was in Kickstarter. You cost me a few quid there. It's all right. That's fine. Um, Thank you. So I went in on the. I went in. Uh, for, you know, it's great for for audio, obviously. But I've got my nice little wire bound reference guide here, which is all part of the package. So there may be a lot of moves, but they're beautifully presented, and the organisation of your book is second to none. Um, you know, everything is is at your fingertips. The Starforge book is a lovely read, um, but I don't use it in the game now. Don't have to. So. I've just got all my stuff in front of me. And um, I'd like to know where that decision came from with the physical product of, of putting a little wire bound, well, it's not little, but putting a reference guide beside it, which is you know, pretty much just the mechanics and none of the flavor. Um, I think it's it works really well at my table. Did you did you put much thought into this? A throwaway idea? What, where did that come from? I did, I did, something, I did a similar thing for Iron Sworn that mm. was just a print-on-demand, like a letter-sized booklet. Um, that just had the moves and the oracles and people seem to like that I did that as a pay what you want sort of thing um, after I launched uh, Iron Sworn and I think I think the advantage of it number one for like sharing at the table I think it's a nice more portable format than passing around a rule book and then it just also there's a little bit for me of like the reaction of people at Star Forge is a 400 page rule book like it's got to be like super complex and crunchy and overwhelming so it's it's about like showing what the a good portion of that rule book is the is not stuff you have to read. It's stuff you you know refer to to generate the world or the moves or whatever. Mm-hmm. For the spiral bound, I love spiral bound stuff. Like just ever since I was a kid, and in the early days of like when drive through RPG came came up, I had one of those like punch things where you could just make your own spiral bound books, and I just. Mm. I had a shelf full of just like print stuff I printed out from drive through RPG that I went and bound myself. Um, I just like the little format. I like the lay format, lay flat format. I think I, you know, it turned out to be a little bit more of a challenge than I thought just because even things like the margins between the two books are different. So I had to like relay out an entire second book <laughs> essentially. Um, I didn't anticipate that. I thought I'd be, Oh, I just take these pages and put them in a spiral thing and, Bob's your uncle, call it a day, but <laughs> it was more complex than that. But I, I do like how it turned out. I th- it's a format I'll definitely use in the future. It's a little bit more complex to use because it's not something you could do print on demand as easily. But for an mm. offset print, you know, it's a it's a nice format. I like it a lot. Yeah, I have a rule cyclopedia that's uh, spiral bound as well yeah. from the early days of drive through. Yeah. Doesn't look so good on the shelf, but this is a game to be played. Yeah. So I've still got my shelf copy. 
Um, the, but the spiral bound stuff, it has to be laid out flat in front of you and covered in post-it notes. I'm being quite rough with it, actually. Rougher than I would be <laughs> with my other little artifacts that are on the shelf, which are all pristine and never be marked. But yeah, this is a working document and uh, it's, it's doing a good job of keeping my other book nice and safe over there. Yeah. Well, it's got good quali- paper quality. I mean, it's not mm. like a lot of times you see on those sort of things, like it's the, it's the thinner paper or whatever, but it's the same quality as the hardback yeah. book, just plopped in a soft cover and given a spiral bound, so... Sure. And I also got the asset cards as well. So assets are uh, a mechanical part of the game, aren't they? So um, they're a dry wipe, uh, like a deck of card size. Yep. And for those who don't know, the assets are personal qualities that you pick for your character and you have a, a small handful of those each and you've got some shared resource as well. And they've been great fun in convention gaming to sort of spread those out on the table and I can like maybe take out some cards that I don't fancy for my campaign. You've got some space magic in there in that deck, all right. Yeah, for sure. yeah. <laughs> you've got a few things in there, but they're, they're really good visuals. So again, with the notion of, of some cards go, you just like stuff at your solo game, don't you? Is that what it is? <laughs> I like the, I like bits, uh, like the tactile yeah. bits. Um, <laughs> yeah, again, that was a little bit like coming from a little bit of a board game background. Is a little bit the stuff I was playing prior to Iron Sworn. I was playing a lot of Fate and. Hmm. A lot of the, a lot of what fate is all about is sort of like creating. Um, it's a little bit like system building as you sort of create a campaign, right? You decide what bits of the fate system and how you're going to handle mechanical stuff like uh, weapons or whatever. I used to use cards a lot for that. I would make little custom printed cards for like, here's your gun and here's the mechanical attributes of the gun, and then give those to the players as just little the the bits of their character that they could have beside their character sheet or if they had a companion like a robot companion or something like that so mm-hmm. um it's definitely like an outgrowth of that for me of taking taking that approach and applying it to starforge um and iron sworn and um it's a it's a it's meant to be support like ad hoc character creation as opposed to um typical power by the apocalypse games it's often used like play sheets and things like that that are uh, sort of a character archetype that then you have a lot of choices within that archetype. So this is this is a little bit more granular than that. It's a little bit more like mix and match than that, which I like a lot. I like that type of character building where you can just sort of take a few bits and and either either fit a fit a like a, a particular trope or sort of create something unexpected and new out of it. Yeah, I, I mean all the extras. I think they give you. Like I've been saying this for a while, but other games is what I want. Is like like you've got your spiral bound rules encyclopedia. Basically, is like I want all games to do that because I love free league games, for example. But like their alien game, there's a lot of that book that's a two page spread with a beautiful picture on it, and there's like one paragraph on and that, that sort of thing. And I kind of want to go with it a little companion piece that's just the rules, but and and not all the beautiful pictures and fluff and all the rest of it as well. But uh, the cards, I think, as well come like it's not just assets, but it's kind of like things you might have or personality quirks or companions or stuff like that. So they're kind of categorized and it's how players interpret them as well. I think at the table, as I've said before, it's about sharing that weight. So one of them is a glow cat, which sort of yeah. detects emotions and goes different colors, depending on what's around it. And every single game I've had of Starforge, whether I'm guiding someone else's, it's sort of a cooperative game or whatever. Anytime somebody picks a glow cat and it gets picked quite a lot, it's something different. Like the way the player describes it is always different, and the way it interacts, even though mechanically it's the same, the way it appears yeah. at the table always seems different because people have different movies running in their heads when they play in the game, right? 
Yeah, that's a really fun aspect of it. And that's like, that was, uh, to be honest, like the asset cards, like being a poker sized card was like a forcing function for me of like, for these character abilities and, and resources of limiting the amount of words I could put on it because my tendency would be to overwrite them and pr provide like a, a big description or something, right? Versus just make it all somewhat implied and letting the player fill in the blanks. And I, I think that is really successful. And I've had thoughts, gee, in a future version, should I go to like tarot size cards? Because I find it's a, it's a challenge. Like I'll work a day on a single asset of like figuring out, like I have the abilities that I want to present in mind and I know the mechanics that I need to do and trying to get that down to X number of characters so they fit on a poker card is, boy, that's a that's a rough one sometimes. So I, th I think in the end it's a good thing because it, you know, makes them easily digestible plus it allows a lot of room for like player imagination. I try to provide like the, the mechanical rewards or results that you need for that particular ability and allude to some of the like narrative implications of that and let the character figure out the rest. Let the player figure out the rest rather. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that works perfectly. And it's there's even bits of mechanic there as well. Like I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think the cat's got sort of four boxes or hexagons because it's a sci-fi game. The, and that's like the, what you roll uh, to go with your ability if you're using the cat. But you could also use that to offset damage or trauma that you take onto the cat, but then it won't be as useful later on because it's injured. So there's, it's only a little decision to make. But having little decisions like that, like it just gives players like an extra arrow in their quiver of other things they could do. Do I offset to my animal? Do I? But that that will become making you less useful. And, and you know, it's not. Um, these aren't massive momentous things, but just having lots of little decisions players can make makes the game more interesting, right? It gives, I think Ben and I both say quite often, like, we like game in our game. So if you've got some decisions to make rather than just roll the EG20, that just makes the whole experience more interesting from my perspective anyway. Yeah, I actually have a rule when creating assets is I try to have two decisions in each one. So two choices versus, though there might be a... Some assets might have a flat ability, like when you do X, you get Y, right? That is just like, it's in computer game, you'd call that like a passive, right? It's not something you have to think, sort of think about or make a choice on or push a button on. It just happens. But others are, you know, others are forcing a little bit of a decision. Either there's like a risk reward thing or you're having to make a choice from several on outcomes or you're making a decision as to whether to roll with a particular like your goal cat, are you going to roll with, with its integrity uh, and potentially sort of like r risk its own health in this situation or or just roll with one of your own stats? So those little, like like just those little moment-to-moment -moment mechanical decisions I think are, are fun. And I like the narrative implications that sometimes comes out of that as well. Yeah, and certainly with like, something like the cat, for example, other other players or certainly other characters in the game like will be uh, displeased if you put in the cat in peril, if it's become a feature of the game, you know, like the, you know, they'd rather you suffer than the clock cat does and things like that. I think it's hard to the richness of the game. People get attached to those little poker-sized cards sometimes, yeah. <laughs> they really do. They do. So could, speaking of the poker-sized cards and, and circling back to some of the other stuff we've discussed as well, can we talk about starships, please? It's uh, starships and sci-fi go, you know, like bread and butter. In fact, I think I guess for many people, the sort of starships you have in mind, it flavors the rest of the genre. You're a Millennium Falcon kind of guy, or you're an Enterprise kind of guy, or right. whatever it's going to be. Yeah. So 
your approach to starships, I think, is... Um, well, I'd like to hear what your approach to a starship is, uh, for the, those who don't know your game as well. But it's, um, I think it's an unusual approach, because I, I'd like to know if you developed all kinds of starship systems and starship combat systems, and they're laying in a folder somewhere, and you moved away from <laughs> that, or you, you knew what you were going to do, which was, you know, to... Uh, to sort of cut to the chase is going to be quite simple but very evocative uh i definitely explored some stuff early on i i had a lot of drafts that were treating this starship very much more as a character unto itself similar to how the player is structured with its own stats and some level of mechanical complexity out of the box right but i eventually sort of leaned into the idea of of just focusing on the character and there's almost a medical phys- metaphysical relationship between the character and the ship because you're using your stats. You may have abilities on the ship that you get via assets that are ship components that, that give you benefits in particular situation that sort of add to that role or whatever that sort of are, are a pseudo, you know, ship mechanic. But for the most part, it's, it's leading with the character and what is the character doing and how is the ship supporting that the ship is the ship itself is just a single asset card that you get by default and it has, it has a couple baseline abilities the baseline ability is your ship you know can, can move basically and then it just goes from there as you add components and there's some there's some stuff in the campaign setup that encourage you to sort of like give your ship a little bit of uh, flavor like give it a name give it some quirks um, that are you know for the most part purely narrative um, and there's some implications certainly in the game of like the nature of ships not being necessarily enterprise, probably leaning more into the the used future type aesthetic of something like Star Wars, right? Certainly, I think that's that's just something that appeals to me, like the Firefly Star Wars aesthetic. I find a little bit more trundling around the galaxy, and your you know ship that's held together with spit and prayers. I think is a, a more appealing sort of like aesthetic to me versus the 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 something like a enterprise but it's all pretty mutable you know you can you can adjust to your liking mm. yeah it's um the, the scenario that i've run multiple times is uh i break the starship in the first hour which is really <laughs> cool to do just bust it wide open yeah but uh, but but most of my plot came from from um from one look up on an oracle table to find out that the starship that the players were going to have have fluctuating grab generators um, and that was that was it the, the idea of like you know being bounced around on the ceiling on occasion and just you know as you're walking down towards the shower there's this little weak gravity zone on the way it's like a creaking <laughs> floorboard in a haunted house where you go all floaty for a bit it just puts so much character into it and, and you find yourself doing the thing that you the word that you use in, in your book in your game is envision yeah. um, and I think it's so good that you've called out to do that that's a thing to actually that's actionable is to is to envision the situation, envision what that looks like and feels like, which, of course, all players and GMs will say they're doing all the time, but the books really direct you to that. In most other games, they just assume that you're going to do that, that role-playing is going to find its way to you, but you cannot help but stare at the ceiling a lot when you're reading Starforged, and you're mulling and, and envisioning, and then you look down again and there's some random stuff on a post-it note, and that's your game, it's ready. You're off and going. Mm. Really exciting. Yeah, I think, I think that's important, especially... With the way Iron Sworn and Starforge function is, is you tend to it tends to be pretty 
um, moves forward. You're rolling the dice a lot. Like it's not one of those games where you necessarily mm -hmm. say, oh, we had a great session. We didn't roll the dice once in three hours. I probably failed as a game designer making a game if that if you're playing Star Wars, you haven't rolled the dice in three hours, right? <laughs> um, but because of that, you can tend to sort of move from move to move, mechanic to mechanic without sort of stopping and letting the narrative soak in a little bit. So I use that prompt in vision pretty liberally through everything to mm -hmm. just remind you, take a moment, like think about the sort of the narrative of what's happening um, and then do your stuff and then let the outcome then feed back into the, the that sort of narrative engine. Um, so that's, I don't know how many times the book says envision, but it's a lot. It's probably 10% of the words. <laughs> well, I think even if people are playing something like a Star Trek style game, if you think about what happens with the Starship combat there, it is all about like what's actually happened to the ships quite abstract, right? They'll say, oh, we've lost yeah. decks five through nine and there's uh, life supports at 20% or something. These are all meaningless numbers that they shout out. What they focus in on is what the individual character's doing. And it'll go down to the engine room to see what Scotty or whoever it happens to be is doing and what their task is. So I think that, that even if you don't want to play the asteroids in space kind of stuff, which I think everybody on this panel uh, would prefer, that you know the, the game still supports the, that kind of Star Trek Starship combat type thing anyway, because you might get an, uh, an external drone shot or whatever if they, the two ships shoot at each other. But really it comes down to what's happening to the, the stars of the show on the ship that's the important bit. Yeah. Where's your where's your camera focused for sure? Now then, aliens, aliens, Sean. Yeah, <laughs> starships and aliens. That's what you get in a sci-fi game, right? Yeah, um, your sci-fi game hasn't got any starships or aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Why no alien? Good questions. Uh, number one, I think the game supports aliens just fine. Whether it's like you're living in a universe that's populated by other. Um, species or whether you yourself are playing an alien species it's it's all good because the character mechanical fluff is light enough that you can frame up things however you like right you can you can be a, a water breathing you know alien from Sirius 3 and it's fine as long as you can work around that narratively with the other players of having your you know apparatus that you wear around oxygen environments or whatever um, and you're probably if you go to a water planet you're probably in your element and there's some things that that you should be able to do naturally that maybe are a challenge for the other players right so that all works fine in terms of like defining sort of the 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 baseline of of the assumed setting i just like the idea of sort of a lonely sort of isolated humanity like i like the aesthetics of that there's a lot of i think imp when you introduce alien races there's a lot of implied like fluff that needs to come along with that in terms of abilities and things like that and i just wanted to sort of keep it a little bit more focused on just the default assumptions of like baseline humans and the abilities you have are all you know specific to that you can you can get pretty gonzo with the abilities you have as a human. You know, as you say, there's you know a certain level of space magic that you can gain and stuff like that, where you can do extraordinary things. But I think just aesthetically, like the the sci-fi that often appeals to me, sort of like you know, is along those lines. So the the game I made sort of reflects that 
and you said that's the choices you make as a game designer but at the same time as i did it i knew if someone wants to take this game and you know just just skin it with a different sci-fi world it's going to work just fine so i don't i don't need to worry about it necessarily i don't need to accommodate every kind of sci-fi because it's within a, a certain range it's pretty mutable mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're on Han Solo and Chewbacca, you can easily make those two characters, right? The, yeah, yeah. The tools are there to do it. But you know, it saves me as a lazy game designer of right of of you know defining the lore of Chewbacca, right? I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't have to worry about that. I can, <laughs> I can put that on the players. Uh, so, but did you actually try some of the solo play in the end? I think you were going to look into it at yeah. some point. So, how did you find that? And uh, perhaps we can grill Sean a little bit on how uh, you'd make a solo game. Yeah, so yeah, it's, um, solo gaming is not something I do uh, particularly. Although being brought up in the UK, we had fighting fantasy back in the day. Uh, yeah. So Ian and Steve Jackson were pretty much our solo games, weren't they? And, and a little you know, bit of a dabble in tunnels and trolls. Um, but you know, solo solo gaming has just not really come across my bowels very often in the past few decades. But I wanted to give it a go with Starforge because. I, I feel like I feel like, and I think I think you're confirming this in your conversation with us tonight, Sean. I feel like it was made out of a solo game first, and and the other stuff has been nicely put together so that it can accommodate multiple styles. But the, the solo routes are in there, um, and it's so easy to do. But what you, what I've had to do, what I've had to learn to do, is to do it um, in in a strange way. But it's a strange way for me, and it's probably a, a solo game. You probably think this is totally normal. So my solo play of Starforged happens when I'm driving my car to work or if I'm in the shower or if I'm just sort of noodling around in my room and I've got my character sheet pinned up on my wall near my bed and I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes with a kind of strange thought in my head and I'll be playing I will be playing Starforged maybe only for two minutes maybe only for five minutes an hour but I don't go and sit down at a table with my notebook and go right it's Starforged solo time that that doesn't happen but I think in my head, I've been doing a campaign for about six months. I think I'm currently in about four campaigns now. I don't think they've ended, but I just keep going back to them and noodling away at them because you just play that Wonder If game in your head. So like I've come, I got used to carrying around 2D10 and D6 in my pocket. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, I'm glad I didn't create a dice pool system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Or I use that um, that really nice app. Yeah, but it's not hard to find a dice roller, is it? But um, and with cloud computing, my character sheet's kind of around all the time. But I like my physical character sheet with my paper clips on the side. You know, I've got different colours and stuff because stationary matters. Um, but it's been really good fun to play solo. Really good fun. And I find I'm being quite hard on myself as a character. Like really hard on myself. Whenever I have to pay the price, I pay a big price. I mean, I've had limbs flying. I mean, it's just normal now. Whereas when I'm guiding a game, I feel a little bit guilty if I have to tell someone to write bruised on their character sheet. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm absolutely horrible to myself. And that's quite that's quite interesting to find out how and why that happened. Not uncommon. There's an interesting psychology around that. I think that somebody should do a study on some time of solo players and their tendency to to lean pretty hard into negative outcomes versus mm. whereas a GM, you naturally, I think, moderate that. Um, and... I'm not sure why. I think there's some uh, there's some element of trying not to cheat, right? And you've yeah. got a system that that doesn't tell you what the specific of a of a of a price is. It's it's giving you some flexibility to decide. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, in your effort to be sort of, uh, to be fair, you sort of lean a little bit harder than you should perhaps. Um, and I don't know. I think, I think there's also just the inherent sense that drama comes out of adversity and there's a little bit of an, you know, intuition. I think that we're all, you know, hardwired to tell stories. So, and we read books where the characters just go through it, right, from page to page, you know. So I think there's a little bit of that driving that as well, just like us, us chasing the drama. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun so far. It's really opened my eyes to a few different things, a few different ways to play. Um, but yeah, so but Solo's been a lot of fun. So I've, I've done all three modes. Um, not much of the co-op stuff, as I say. I didn't have a fantastic experience with co-op, but I would like to do that again. Um I think I would like to do that again with people who've probably done a bit of solo themselves or a bit mm. of guided themselves, and we've we've all come together in the same space. You probably need more of that than you do when you're playing a guided game. But I'm quite excited to play some co-op stuff. Yeah, I think you know, there's always going to be um, anytime you're playing with others, right? There's going to be a little bit of like the synergy of the relationship and stuff like that. And I think when it's like a couple of people or three people in a co-op game i think even more so like it, i think it's probably not the best game for a pickup game with strangers versus you know playing with your mates or playing with your significant other i think it's i think it's great for that um especially if you've got some experience playing together and have a good rapport mm. Mm. yeah definitely so there's um there's a ton of stuff out there if you want to see what solo players like this I, i've recommended someone before i'll let them let them look back at our previous episodes, but I can tell link people up. If you want to go on YouTube, there's there's tons of examples of it. But um, it's obviously been very well received. And then something else you've worked on is the the Strider mod for the One Ring. So what what was that experience like? That was a great experience. Uh, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of the world, going way back um, as a kid, reading the books and watching the Hobbit, Rankin Bass animated show, and all those things and. So something I grew up with, so just having a little small part in that world, I think was a lot of fun. I admired the game a lot since the first edition. I just think it's a great system. I think it's one of the best examples of tying uh, a system to the world, supporting supporting a world like that with a system that's custom designed for it versus mm -hmm. just one that's more generic. I just think it's a super evocative implementation um, and just almost like puts you in the Tolkien mindset just yeah, playing for sure. you can't help but be in that world um, and I think one of the benefits of the system for solo play is that and I, you mentioned this earlier it's a it's a very procedural system like it's got it's little game loops of travel and the social stuff the councils and combat that I think work really well because that's something that Ironsworn and Starforge is doing and the other games I design do is they tend to have those pretty um, sort of fixed game mechanisms that you sort of like flow through. So, so I think the solo stuff plugged into that pretty nicely, and, and they're a great free league's a great company to work with. So, um, we had a good time with it. It's challenging, like it's always really challenging to sort of take a existing system and figure out how can we sort of reverse engineer this and support solo play and where where the holes of the system is assuming that you're playing with others and the the mechanics depend upon that like what do we need to sort of plug with something additional there wasn't a whole lot of that in in the one ring it you know it it works pretty nicely so happy with how it came out how do you 
playtest and things like that, I guess I think of the challenge with the, with a group, you can kind of give it to a group and say, okay, Jim, yeah. you're in charge. You consume this and show it to the people. Like, how do you do you give a solo game just to like one person and say, see if this works? <laughs> like, uh, well, I can play test it myself as one of the advantages, but that's not always the best thing for a designer. Um, we do a lot of like we'll do a lot of like co-op stuff where I can be a little bit more sort of passive um, in the experience and let the other person take a little bit more to the lead of like interpreting the mechanics and interpreting the fiction and things like that and sort of like it allows me to sort of be there and at the same time like help answer questions and and see what's working and what's not and what do we need to spackle in and and where do we need some more maybe some more support for the player um that's the usual thing really for me with the stuff i do is you know obviously reach out to solo players within the social networks i have and we've got a Ironsworn Discord that has thousands of people sort of ready to try out stuff. But the best thing for me is to sort of like sit there and see it in action, see how it comes out, and then play it myself. You know, I get a lot. Ironsworn started with me like for a couple of years, like plunking around with stuff in isolation before I released anything. Um, and then it just slowly started to go out to other people to try. So there's there's value in that. You, you can be pretty objective about what's working, what's not working, and not you know, continue to sort of bash your head against stuff just because you you know it well enough that you can get around it, then I I think it works out fine. Mm. People have to kill your darlings, I think is the paraphrase yeah. what some of the people have said. But yeah. you do seem to have a very kind of like healthy attitude towards towards game design, if I may say so. Like you quite often say, if this doesn't work, then I failed as a game designer. Like you always look at it from a point of view of like, what have I done wrong rather than somebody's using my stuff wrong or something like that. You know? That's just, that's, that's my personality is to blame myself in all circumstances. So it works pretty well. It t- turns out great games though. So that's, that's a good thing. Right? Oh, thanks. What's coming up next? Sundered Isles is a, is a big thing that in the updates as part of the Kickstarter for Star Wars, you, you gave yourself some, uh, some nice stretch goals to hit and uh, Sundered Isles. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please, Sean? So Sundered Isles is a seafaring setting. It's a supplement for Starforge. It's not sci-fi. It's a sort of seafaring fantasy, potentially usable in like historical seafaring settings, like Age of Sail type stuff. Why have your first supplement be a science fiction game, be a like 17th century, <laughs> like pseudo historical thing? Number one is cool. Number two, I think there's, Sci-fi has a lot of analogs to like seafaring age of sail type sort of tropes and mm-hmm. genre assumptions that I think map really well. The ship stuff maps really well. The exploration stuff maps really well. Like all the bits and bobs I built for Starforge to support a sci-fi setting actually connect to that type of setting pretty well. And it's a setting I wanted to sort of get out of my system a little bit because I've been sort of aspiring to do something along those lines. And it was it was kind of a perfect opportunity to sort of plug that into the Starforge mechanics. And the mechanical stuff doesn't need to change very much. Like some of the moves get some slight rephrasing. Um, so it's really all focused on like world building, oracles, and some new character assets. And the nice thing about the character assets is if you've got a swashbuckly sort of space sci-fi setting, most of, the, most of the new assets are usable in that. So it's just giving you more options. It's giving you options to 
sort of extend some of the um, attributes of your ship. Like it, you can add a crew and have some sort of narrative and mechanical support for for having a crew to support you in your actions. Um, you get some new, you know, ship modules, all those sort of things that you could sort of take and plug and play within a sci-fi setting pretty easily as well. Or you can do Treasure Planet types type, you know, Age of Sail in 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 sci-fi and and you can mix and match the oracles between. You can use the planet generation oracles from Starforge with some of the you know the oracles from uh, Sundar Isles and have it all interact in fun ways. So um, that's the whys and wherefores of it. Mm-hmm. Seems to be hanging together so far. It's been much more work than I anticipated. Like everything for me is. Like Ironsworn Delve, which was a supplement for Ironsworn, which was like, I got a lot of requests. Like, how do I do like dungeon exploration in Ironsworn? I was like, well, I'll just knock out like a procedure and some oracles for like exploring dungeons. And that became a 300 page book, right? And then this one, you know, has outgrown its aspirations to a great degree as well. But I think that's, I think it's good. It's just, Choices, you know, I like the nice, rich oracles. I think that's just more grist for the mill, so it's all fine. Well, it's, uh, it's been awesome having you back on again, Sean. Thanks very much for returning as a guest. Thanks ever so much for talking to us, Sean. It's an absolute pleasure to catch up with you and uh, to see you, you're doing so well and that your games are flying off the shelves. Yeah. Uh, thanks to all our patrons. If you're interested, visit us at patreon.com forward slash the smart party. Drop us a dollar in the jar and that enables us to keep going, keeps us motivated and get more excellent guests like Sean on the show. Until next time, dear listeners, bye-bye.